We thank you for who you are, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, I warned you, there's a lot of me today, so welcome to Mission Church. We are glad you're here. Um, pastor Eric is preaching at Plano Baptist Church. They're, uh, in the, they're looking for a pastor, uh, so people are filling in to try to help them out. Local pastors, they asked him to preach. I was already on the schedule. It worked out perfect, so here we are. Um, I am glad to see uh, all of you here today because if that three had gone down, I think I would have been preaching to Kyle Charlo, and that's about it because he's the only non. Oh, and Heather Shaner would have been here, the Louisville fan. So uh, I am glad that you are here. Um, what a game. Anyway, thank you again for being here. Welcome to Mission Church. Um, we just finished Jesus the Storyteller, so we, we went through some of the parables of Jesus, and that led us right into this Easter season. Okay, now this Sunday we will actually look at uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Many people call it Palm Sunday. Uh, your Bibles call it the Triumphal Entry. We will actually go into that a little bit. Um, but it actually coincides very well with the series we just finished because some of the parables he told that we even went over over the past few weeks, he told during this week. Uh, he was in Jerusalem when he told some of these. Some of them weren't, some of them were. But... We didn't really plan that timing. Um, as Pastor Eric said last week, we call that sovereignty around here. So God planned it for us to be in the right time, in the right place in his scripture uh, this morning. But um, some of the, the parables uh, lead us into exactly what is being said here this morning. The story of the triumphal entry is in every f all four of the Gospels. Okay? Now there are a lot of things that aren't included in all four Gospels. There's actually only a select few narratives that all four Gospels tell. They're quite important. The cross, all four Gospels. Jesus' baptism makes the list in all four Gospels. Uh, pretty much this whole entire week from triumphal entry to Easter Sunday and the resurrection is in all four Gospels. But really that's about it. There's a couple of miracles that he did that are included. So this is very important. This triumphal entry is not just... All right, he came to Jerusalem. A few days later, he died. A few days later, he rose again. Come to the altar. Here we are. The implications of what is happening here are vast. Looking, forward, looking back and looking forward, there is a lot being said in the triumphal entry. Does anyone's Bible, I just want to take a poll, the heading above John chapter 12, verse 12, does anyone's Bible not say the triumphal entry? Does it, I, well, I did not expect anyone to raise their hand. Um, does it say Palm Sunday or something like that? You can talk. It's allowed. Silly. Anyway, the triumphal entry... The triumphal entry <laughs> is um, what it is called in, in all of our Bibles, I think, except maybe one back there. Um, and yet, we look at it, we know the rest of the story. Is it really that triumphal? Shouldn't it be called the untriumphal entry? Jesus is knowingly writing to his death here. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's going to happen in a few days. The disciples should know. I'm not sure they've really picked it up yet. They're not the saltiest crackers in the box. He's told them over and over again, and yet I'm not sure that they've really picked it up. Um, but, side note real quick, does anybody find it funny that Jesus tried to like tell the disciples in coded language over and over, hey, I'm going to die. He tells them in parables and things like that, and they just weren't getting it. And finally, towards the end, right before he gets to Jerusalem, he's like, look, I'm going to die, guys, guys. I'm going to die. He literally says, this is why I came. This is the only reason I came. I am going to die. There is no way around it. And then the disciples are like, 
I, I don't know. Maybe he meant something different. He tries to talk in coded language. They take it literal. He tells them literally, and they try to take it in coded language. And then Peter attacks the guy and tries to stop it all from happening. Anyway, so Jesus is going to his death, and we call it triumphal. Now, ultimately, we know we call it that because we know the rest of the story. We know that he dies, but that his death is ultimately a victory over sin, Satan, and death because he is raised three days later, which is what we will celebrate next week. But these people that are praising him on the way into Jerusalem, they, they don't know that part yet. They have no idea any of that is going to happen. As a matter of fact, if you told them, hey, this is how it's going to turn out, they would probably argue with you. And we see that through this whole thing. Now, this, uh, this is going to be a Palm Sunday triumphal entry sermon. Um, but it comes with, and I think it's implied here in the text, um, if you look at the whole of Scripture, a stern warning, or, or at least a very serious caution um, that we should take an honest assessment of ourselves and an honest assessment of who we think we know Jesus to be. Um, because these people were sorely mistaken. Um, but let's begin with the text. So the next day, a large crowd had come, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. All right, these people were praising Jesus. They were basically saying, here is our new king. You are bringing in a new regime, and it is about time. We have been oppressed long enough, Jesus. Thank you for coming in and giving us the power we so rightly deserve because we are God's chosen people and this is what we deserve. Thank you for finally coming in and taking care of business. And what he was ushering in a new kingdom, but he was not ushering in the kingdom that they thought he was ushering in. He was not ushering in an earthly kingdom. He was coming on God's terms, on his own terms, not on the terms of the Israelites. And Jesus knew this. He knew that the very same people who were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord save us, come save us, give us salvation because you have salvation, were six days later going to be the same people crying out, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, he deserves to die. And you see, they wanted Jesus alright. But when they, they wanted the Jesus they thought was going to restore them to their power, to their prestige, they had no intentions of changing or being coming more humble. They wanted nothing of the true Jesus that told them things like take up your cross or that this is going to be difficult. They wanted Jesus on their own terms and when that did not happen, it took six days to change their minds. Six days. The greatest news on earth that has ever existed was not what they wanted to hear and it took six days for them to, to change their minds. And we look back and we go, silly Jewish people. How, how could they miss this? And yet, don't we do the same thing? Don't we want Jesus on our own terms too? If we're completely honest with ourselves. Oh, I love Jesus. But how dare he tell me what to do? Because I'm going to do me. YOLO, whatever. All these other catchphrases that we've got. Because we don't want a king. We don't want a God telling us what to do. Even if he's God, how dare he? I know how to do my life better than God knows how to do my life. Or, I know you said go and make disciples, but you didn't mean me. <laughs> you didn't gift me in that way. You gifted me more in the sit back and let everyone else do all the work way. 
That's, that's my gift, and that's how I'm going to serve the kingdom, is by letting everyone else do it. Or God tells us to kill sin, and w- instead of killing sin, we just compare it to others. <laughs> oh, my sin doesn't need to be killed. Her sin needs to be killed. She's the real sinner over there. I'm going to keep doing this because it's not so bad. But she's the one that really... We want Jesus on our terms. We want Jesus to be the king of the things we allow him to be the king of. And these people were doing the same thing. They had no intentions of changing or becoming more humble. As a matter of fact, they were really doing it for the opposite reason of humility. They wanted the power back that they were promised by God because they were God's chosen people. They wanted the prestige that went with being God's chosen people. They wanted to be able to run their own lives. It was not about submitting to Jesus as king of their lives. It was about ousting the people that were being the king of their lives. And that's really all they wanted. And I think that if we were all totally honest with ourselves and with others, that we would say we do this sometimes as well. Maybe not all the time, but sometimes we don't really want Jesus to be the king of our lives. We want Jesus to be the king of areas of our lives. And that's not what he came to be. It even tells us in verse 18 here that the reason, the reason, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. We see just before this scripture the, the narrative of him raising Lazarus from the dead. We don't have time to fully elaborate on that story um, because its implication. We could preach two or three sermons on just the raising of Lazarus. But uh, we do see that this feat did cause many Jewish people to believe. In, in John 11.45 it says, Many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. This is the proper response. Um, I don't care what your opinion of me happens to be today. Uh, If I start raising people from the dead, it's going to change. Because I doubt that's what you guys think I'm here for. So if Jesus is doing these things, many people, the proper response is, he might be the real deal. He might be who he said he is. I'm going to believe in him. But let's read in John chapter 12, right before the triumphal entry, the three or four verses right before them, what did they do? It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. They wanted proof that, oh, this is Lazarus. He did raise him from the dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So many of the Jews were having the proper response, and some of these other Jews were like, let's just kill him. And let's kill that other dude again, because he's already died. And I wonder if he was laughing in their face. Hey, we're going to kill you. All right. I've been there, done that, thanks. Four days ago. Anyway, he's hanging out with the dude that literally raised him from the dead. So I doubt he was too worried. But anyway, think about the irrationality of this response. They've been waiting for a Messiah for years. The Jewish people, this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is not a Christianity, modern American Christianity idea. This has been from the beginning. From sin, God has promised, eventually I'm going to deal with sin, and this is how I'm going to do it. The Jewish people would have known the word Messiah to be very sacred. They are looking for him all the time. Is this guy him? Is this guy him? That's what they asked John the Baptist earlier in the Gospels. Hey, are you, are you that guy? He's like, no, no, no. Don't get it twisted here. I'm not him, but I can point you to the one that is him. They were looking for him. Then one dude shows up proves that he is by raising a guy 
four days worth of dead. He wasn't just barely dead like we see nowadays where somebody has a near-death experience. He was four days in the grave. It says that he stinketh, if you Old, Old Testament, or if you like the King James Version. But he was very much dead. Jesus comes in, proves by these signs, hey, I am this Messiah you've been looking for. And instead of going, you know, I think you're right, they want to kill him. They want to destroy the evidence. Let's hope if we destroy the evidence of him raising Lazarus, we'll kill him, and we kill the guy that raised him, maybe people will forget. Again, we look at this, and we, see, we know the whole story, so we say, this seems so silly and irrational. But again, don't we do these same things? If we simply ignore his commands, it's like they never happened. If we simply ignore and act as if they don't exist, I can pretend that he never said, go make disciples. I can pretend that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I can live in this pluralistic culture and blend in who, the culture who says, there are many ways to God. Your God is who you choose your God to be. As long as you believe in something, you're okay. And that's not in Scripture. But I can pretend that it is. And I can fit into culture and not stand out so much by saying, your way is fine, this is my way. I choose Jesus, you choose however you want. That's not what it says here. But we do this. We try to do the same cover-up as the Pharisees. We may not be trying to kill Jesus, but in essence, we're trying to make people forget who he was. Or we're trying to forget who he was ourselves. So all of this happens. It causes the Pharisees to want to kill Jesus. Clearly, Jesus knew this. If you look in John eleven fifty three and 54, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So they were planning to kill him already. Jesus knew it. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a place that I don't know how to pronounce, so I'm not going to. He hid out. This was not because Jesus was scared. He knew why he had come to earth. This was not because he was worried about the pain and the agony of the cross he knew this is why he had come he knew though that this was not his time we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment because there are multiple times where he he kind of slips out and hides and runs away but while he's hiding out the passover time comes now this is a major major deal for jewish people at the time we kind of lose it in context because we don't do it but this was a major, major deal. Uh, if you're a note taker, we're not going to flip back there, but it's in Exodus 12 is where the story of the original Passover is from. This is why they were celebrating. This is why all these people were going to Jerusalem. It is here in Exodus 12 that we see God saving the Israelites. So he has sent nine plagues at this point, right? None of those seem to have worked. If you watch that terrible movie Exodus with Christian Bale in it, don't if you haven't. But if you have... This is after all of those things happened uh, with the gnats and the frogs and all of those things. This is the last one. God is finally saying, this is the one that's going to work, Moses. We're going to get your people out of here. But to do it, we're going to kill the firstborn of everybody that's here. And the only way to save your firstborn is if you kill a lamb and take, their blood, take the blood of that lamb and paint it over your doorpost so that my angel will know who to pass over it's where the name comes from so the israelites do this this is their 
event, this is their ceremony, this is their week to commemorate what God has done through the Passover lamb, through sparing the firstborn children of, their, uh, of them back in the time when they were enslaved to Egypt. So they come here to celebrate it every year at the same time, and one part of that week was still sacrificing a lamb. They would still do it. They didn't necessarily paint it over their doorposts because there was not actually the threat of their firstborn dying, but they would still kill the lamb to commemorate because of the lamb back in the day, God saved us. God spared our firstborn and he brought us out of Egypt. Now many people estimated that in Jerusalem at that time there would have been uh, roughly, this is an estimate of course, 30,000 people. But during Passover week, that number exploded to at least what they estimate 200,000 people. To put that in perspective, some of you guys go to Western, or at least all of us have seen the campus. Imagine if all of a sudden tomorrow you show up and there's 175,000 students. You'd probably notice. Be a little more crowded in class. You might not be able to get down the hallways as easily. People would have known that this was going on. Passover was a huge deal. And lots and lots of Jewish people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. The Pharisees were there. They considered themselves super Jews, so they were definitely there celebrating. The chief priests are always there, so they were there. And this is where all the people that wanted to kill Jesus were. They were in Jerusalem. This is, maybe, this is just me spitballing here. Hey, don't go to Jerusalem if people want to kill you. If I'm Jesus, I'd have been like, oh, all the people that want to kill me are in Jerusalem? I'm going to go anywhere literally on the earth other than that. Um, even before he raised Lazarus from the dead, the disciples are getting a little scared. In John eleven sixteen, 16, um, after Jesus tells them, hey, Lazarus has died, we're going to go take care of this, the disciples look around like, Our, I don't know about this. Thomas, by the way, Thomas, he's my favorite disciple. He's the realest of the bunch. Okay? He's the one that doesn't just accept everything as true. Um, I identify with Thomas the most, and he gets a bad rap. But anyway. Um, he says in John eleven sixteen, let us go with him and die with him, meaning Lazarus. He knew that danger was on its way. Okay? He knew it was basically suicide. It sounds like he's excited. It sounds like in the movie he was like, let's do it. Let's go die with him. That's not exactly the context. He was really out of fear. Um, again, why I identify with him because I'd be scared. Uh, he gets a bad rap for all the doubting stuff, but you can act like you wouldn't have reacted that way if you want to, but Y'all are better liars than I am. I'd have done the same thing. Oh, you're Jesus? Show me. Show me those holes in your hands. Oh, okay. That, anyway, that's a side note. So they knew that it was not... I do want to say he was willing to die, though. Like, if y'all want to give him a bad rap. He was, he was like, let's go. Let's do this. I don't want to, but if we got to die, we got to die. So, again, he gets a bad rap. I like Thomas. Anyway, so they knew it was not the smartest move to even go close to Jerusalem, much less after Jesus has raised the dude from the dead, again making everyone mad because he's again proving that he's Jesus, again proving that he's the Messiah. So the, the disciples were probably even scareder, if that's a word now. So it would be really smart for Jesus to stay as far away from Jerusalem as possible. But not this Jesus. He rolls up in there like he's Prince Ali Ababa from Aladdin, riding an elephant, singing songs with a genie in a magic carpet. Like, he does not care. And if the college kids in the room are like, who's Aladdin? And I feel sorry for you because it's amazing. Anyway, if that had been me and people had started singing and drawing attention to me, I'd be like, let's chill out here, guys. 
This is more of a secret mission, if you know what I mean. I, I don't need any attention drawn to myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak in, do the Passover thing, and sneak back out. But Jesus knew that it was finally his time. There's no more hiding. There's no more running. He wasn't scared to start with, but there's no more fear that even needs to be implied. He fled and hid out in John 10 which is right before this. But he knows that it is his time. It, his time has finally come. And he is basically antagonizing people. He's, he went from doing everything he could to not be arrested to, it seems, doing everything he can to be arrested. I'm sure, again, the disciples, who were not the sharpest knives in the drawer, were like, what is he doing? Just a few days ago, we were running and hiding, and now... All of a sudden, we're the bravest people on the planet, and I, I don't get it. Um, but I also think that they were probably like, oh, they're going to praise us for going in there? <laughs> yes, come on. Um, again, the disciples are, we need to do a sermon series on the 12 disciples and look at all their personalities. But anyway, so they expect immediate danger, and what do they receive instead? Joy, praise, open arms. Everyone, it even tells us, everyone is going out to see him. They expect something and they get the total opposite jesus is riding his donkey into jerusalem he is being praised more than he has ever allowed if you look back through the gospels there are many times where jesus says slow down don't praise me that much yet don't tell he heals people and then he says don't tell anybody which they they usually do but regardless he tells them it's not my time yet we don't need to make these people this mad yet so don't tell everybody don't praise me as much and it seems this time He's letting it all happen. Praise me. Yes, I am the king of Israel, even though you're confused as to how. And then in Luke's account of the triumphal entry in chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, we see Jesus is riding his donkey into Jerusalem on what we would consider the greatest day of our lives because everybody is praising us, and he weeps. He looks at Jerusalem and he cries. Why? Because he knows it is superficial. He knows this praise is not going to last very long. He knows that most of the people are confused as to why he comes or why he is coming. He knows that their praise is contingent upon him fulfilling what they want. He knows he's not going to fulfill what they want. So he knows they are going to turn on him in a short amount of time. They wanted a warrior king and they riding a white stallion and they got a servant riding a donkey. And he knew that this was not going to make them happy. They wanted royalty. They got a servant. They, they wanted to be saved from the Romans, and he wanted to save them from their sin. And he knew that this was not going to create lasting praise of his name. Even though they were praising him at this very moment, he knew that it was contingent upon their confused notion of who he was. And you see, the problem is, is they are more like us than we care to admit. We look back because we know the whole story. These people did not know the whole story. They had no, they could have had an idea, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they did not know that this is how it was going to go down. We know the whole story. We look back and we go, man, they were dumb. And yet, we know the whole story and we still act like them more than we want to say. If you ask of yourself today, what is my praise of Jesus contingent upon? If anything comes to mind, I don't care how small or how big it is, you need to change it. It needs to be contingent upon nothing. And the question is, is will you praise him for who he is, who he tells us he is, 
or who you expect him to be, who you want him to be, who you think that he is when it tells us that he is not. You see, these people are praising him, quoting scripture that foretold his coming. Again, this is not a new idea. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a guy to fulfill all of these prophecies. And then they are using a prophecy to praise him. Uh, if you want to turn there, we're not going to read it, but if you want to turn there and look, you can. Psalm 118. This is the psalm that is, this psalm has been widely accepted as a messianic psalm for years. And clearly these Jewish people believe that, or they wouldn't have been using it to praise him as the Messiah. So clearly, this is not us reading into the scripture to say, looking back and go, oh, that, that's totally about Jesus. These Jewish people understood it was about Jesus. Look at verses 25 and 26 in Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. What does Hosanna mean? Save now. It means save us now. They are saying the words, save us, we pray, O Lord, which is from 25 and 26 of Psalm 118. They are praising Him as their new king. But they totally ignore, I know there weren't verses back then, they totally ignore verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected. We talked about that last week, unbeknownst. That's again, sovereignty. But they ignore that Jesus must pay this price. He must be rejected. He is the cornerstone that must be rejected before He can be any of these things or do any of these things for them. So let's, let's really think about this for just a second. They're looking for a Messiah. He's done the things to prove I'm Him. The Jews who are going to fulfill the very prophecy of rejecting the cornerstone are using the very same prophecy to praise Him as He enters the city in which they are going to turn on Him and fulfill the other part of the prophecy. I don't know if that's ironic, a coincidence, weird, or what the word for it is. But I do believe that it is God, all God's doing. If they had paid attention to what they were saying and read the whole thing, because don't we do that? We read part of a story. We see part of a movie. We think we know the whole thing. Oh, I hated that movie. Oh, really? What did you think about the ending? I didn't get that far. The Jewish people are ignoring half of the prophecy that they are using to praise Him, forgetting, hey, we're going to be the people that turn on Him and reject Him. Like We're going to be the ones that fulfill this other part, but they totally ignore that. But even the disciples who had hung out with Jesus for years now didn't see it. They were still confused. Verse 16 in John 12 says that they did not understand these things till Jesus was glorified. So until he died, was buried for three days, rose, and went back to heaven, they still didn't really gather everything that was going on. They still didn't put it all together. Even his disciples, much less these people that are kind of coming in on the tail end here. Even the Pharisees who wanted to kill him, they... they wanted to thwart everything that he was doing, they felt defeated. Look at verse uh, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Everyone is turning on us and turning towards Jesus. They felt defeated, and it was only six days to turn the ship around. This attitude, this, this defeated, desperate attitude, leads them to the measure of arresting him during the Passover. If you read in Matthew 26, 3 through 5, and Mark 4, 2, we're just going to read one, but both of these scriptures say the exact same thing. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
Their attitude was, we need to kill him, but not right now. But Jesus, this is why we see Jesus going from, I'm going to hide out a little bit over here, to antagonizing them to the point that they have to take this desperate measure. The timing has to be right. And the thing is, is the Pharisees really did nothing. They wanted to kill Jesus. They didn't want to do it during Passover. Jesus is the one that did it. Jesus thinned his own herd. He told these crazy parables that we looked at over the past few weeks to get people to go, I, I don't want to follow that guy. I'm out. He thinned his own. The Pharisees couldn't figure it out. They could not figure out how to turn this huge throng of people against Jesus, and yet Jesus did it himself. He's like, I got this. I'll help you guys out. You're idiots. I'll do it for you. And he turns people against himself. That seems so counterproductive. If we're, if we're told to go make disciples, shouldn't Jesus do that as well? And yet he's turning people away on purpose. And I think we see why. It emboldens the Pharisees. You see, it is the, precisely this change in heart that fulfills God's perfect timing. Psalm 118.23, it says that it was all God's doing. All of it. The timing, the people involved, the donkey, everything. It was all God's doing. This has been God's plan well before Jesus' ministry started. That the cornerstone must be rejected. But why during this time? Because He is the true Passover Lamb. He is the ultimate and forever Passover Lamb. He is the true and better, once and for all, Passover Lamb. Think about it. How many in here have celebrated Passover in their lives? No one. No one. I hope no one in here is killing lambs in their backyard. It would be weird if you are. Although I like mutton, so invite me over. But... We, we don't celebrate Passover anymore. Why? Because of Easter. Because of the cross. Because He rode in on a donkey. The cross is beautiful as long as it is empty. Because Easter happened. Because He rose from the dead and became our Passover lamb for all eternity. We don't have to have one every, every year again to stave off our sins. He has taken them away forever once and for all sacrifice passover lamb next week we will celebrate the emptiness of the tomb but we will also celebrate the emptiness of the cross because without the death and without the burial and without the resurrection none of this none of this takes place we i guess we would still have to be killing lambs because without the true once for all passover lamb we are lost and dead in our sin they are trying to thwart God's plan, and instead, they ultimately fulfill it just as God wanted them to do, and especially during this week. Jesus fulfills the prophecy we see in Zechariah 9, 9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. They are singing Hosanna which we will sing actually here in a little bit. Save us now. Because they know, based upon the Messiah prophecies that they have read their whole lives probably, that He holds salvation. Righteous and having salvation is He. So they sing to Him, save us now. You have salvation in your hands. Save us now. But they are wanting salvation from the Romans and He is offering salvation from their sin. And they are wanting it now and He is offering it to them later, but for eternity. 
And this should have inspired such awe in the Israelites for them to look upon this taking place, this triumphal entry, and go, God does keep His promises. He has told us this is how it's going to go down. Even down to the donkey. Like he left no detail out. This should have inspired awe. And yet, it did not last long. But we know the truth, right? We look at this. We know the rest of the story he wrote in there. The reason we call it the triumphal entry is because we know what happened afterward. He died on a cross. Yeah, he died, but it, the death was for a better purpose. And he rose again. We, we know all of those things, right? We know what it was all for. We get it. Why are we talking about it again? Do we? Do we really get it? Because it's at, at this point that you have to ask yourself, am I really worshiping Jesus? Now most people in here I think would say yes to that. If you, if you answer no to that, come talk to me after. That's a different conversation. Please come talk to me after. But the next question, if the answer to that first one that I'm worshiping Jesus is yes, is am I worshiping this Jesus? Am I worshiping the biblical Jesus or some other Jesus that I have concocted just like the Israelites concocted? Because it is this Jesus and only this Jesus that is worthy of our praise. It is this Jesus and only this Jesus who can take away our sins and the sins of the world. It is this Jesus and only this Jesus who can reconcile us back to the Father. And it is this Jesus and only this Jesus who can transform our lives from top to bottom, from inside out, and make us who we are supposed to be in Him. But it is also this Jesus who tells us in Matthew 5.44, to follow Him we must love our enemies. It is also this Jesus in Luke 14.26 that tells us to hate our own families compared to the love we have for him. It is this Jesus who tells us in Luke 9:23 to take up our cross daily and follow him and to tell it tells us to be more and more like him and to follow his example. But we don't want a Jesus who says these things. We want the Jesus that tells us everything's going to be all right, who saves us from the temporary, saves us from the day-to-day, but doesn't tell us what to do, doesn't tell us these hard sayings. We say things like, I would pray for my enemies, but you don't know what they've done to me, Jesus. I'm going to continue to hate them. Or we say, hate my family. Check, been hating my family for years. Thanks. If that's the case, refer back to number one. But <laughs> some of you are in here, are like, my mom and daddy, my best friends. I love them. And I'm not telling you not to love your family. It means to love them less than Jesus. But too many of us are even unwilling to do that because we have good families. And Jesus is saying, Compared to me, if you love them more than you love me, then you are not worthy to be my disciple. We don't want a Jesus that says these things, do we? We want one that we have made up or that we have changed to be a little easier on the ears, a little easier on the eyes, to be what we want him to be. And this is where the stern warning comes in. Jesus tells his disciples, which we would say we are, not, and we're not talking about just the twelve, to take up our cross and to follow his example. This is what it takes to follow Jesus. To take up your cross and to follow his example. Well, this is his example. Ride to your death knowingly every single day. To be like Christ, we must knowingly ride to our death. The donkey is optional, but there are no other options. We must die to ourselves. Luke says to take up our cross daily. This would have had 
huge implications to Jewish people because they knew what the cross really meant. We've beautified it, rightfully so, in today's time because of what it means on this side of the resurrection. But back then, it did not mean that. Back then, it was a death trap. It was a way to murder people. People that deserved death, but it was gruesome. And God, or Jesus is telling his disciples and us, take up your cross, your object of death, every single day. And that is not easy to hear, and that is not easy to do. And we want to change Jesus to where he did not say that. He didn't mean it for me. He may have meant it for other people, but he didn't mean it for me. Because we all have our terms, right? We all have our contingencies. And what we must come to realize is that Jesus is better than all of our terms. He's better than all of our contingencies. We must be able to honestly say that Jesus is the best thing that I have found, even when he is not. Even when following Jesus makes my life exponentially harder than not following Jesus, I must look at it and say, but Jesus is still the best thing that I've found. He is still the best thing we have, even when He is not. Even when I have to ride to my death every day, and it is hard. And I don't want to. We have to look at Jesus and say, but it is worth it. If you can't say that, then you are treating Him just like the Jews did in this time. Just like the Jews did on His way into Jerusalem. Praising Him for who you wanted Him to be and who you thought He was going to be. Realizing He wasn't and turning your back on Him. You are saying, we love you, save us, be our king, but be our king on our terms, not on your terms. And I'm sorry, it just does not work that way. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Not really, actually. It doesn't work that way. Jesus isn't Jesus on your terms or my terms. I do this too. This is not preaching at. This is preaching to myself. But you see, we are still waiting for Jesus' true triumphal entry. He's coming back, and then it will be on a white stallion. And it will be to be our king. And it will be to set up his eternal kingdom. And those he lets into his eternal kingdom are the ones that, he, that can say they love Jesus on his terms for who he truly was, for who he told us he was going to be. The ones who are willing to humble themselves and repent and turn away from sin instead of going, I want a Jesus that lets me be who I am, already am, and doesn't try to change me. May we not demand of Jesus now what he has promised to us in the future. May the promise of difficulty not dissuade us from following Him, but drive us home to the promise that it will all be worth it. We see in Hebrews that it is said of Moses that he considered the reproach, the bad parts of Christ, the persecutions, the things we don't want to do, the taking up our cross, the loving our enemies, the hating our families, all of those things, the reproach of Christ, better than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. May that be said of us as we worship Jesus, the one who affords us that reward, the one who bought us that reward. May we, as Paul in Philippians say, we are straining forward to what lies ahead, for we know what lies ahead because he has promised it to us, and he has told us what it looks like. Turn with me to Revelation. It's at the end of the Bible, in case you didn't know. Don't get scared. This isn't one of the scary ones. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. And let's listen to John's description as we conclude this morning. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Because of this promise, may we sing to the top of our lungs this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna, just like the Israelites did, but may we actually mean it. Save us now, not from our day-to-day lives, but from our sin, because we know we have it. We are wretched in your eyes. But may we be able to see the real Jesus, the true Jesus, this Jesus, the biblical Jesus, and say alongside John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And may we look forward to the day that Jesus returns truly, truly triumphant. Let us pray. Father, we come to You this morning apologizing, begging You to forgive us and repenting of when we have tried to turn You into...